Father, as we open up your word together this morning, we recognize that we are uh, standing on holy ground. Lord, that it's through your word that you speak to us. And so, Lord, we want to have the right posture as we come into this time this morning. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to get low. Father, I pray that you would give us a teachable spirit. Would you give us eyes to see what you would want us to see? And would you give us ears to hear what you would have us to hear? And would you give us hearts and feet to respond? We pray that you would take the word of God and that, Holy Spirit, you would take the word of God and that it would collide with our hearts this morning to make us more like Jesus. So in our time together this morning, even in uh, kind of a, a difficult text, would you make us more like him? Would he just pray, Lord, that Christ would be exalted in this time? So move me out of the way and pray that he would be lifted high. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, in addition to being a, uh, a baby serenader, um, some of you may not know that I'm from a small town in Michigan called Pawpaw, Michigan. And uh, you can Google it today. It's a fascinating place. Uh, it's a town of about 7,000 people. Uh, it's, it's one of those towns where everyone kind of knows everybody. And it, it's also a town where um, there's not much else to do, so high school sports are really big. And so when there's a home football game or a home basketball game, like that kind of becomes like the town event. Uh, in bigger cities, that doesn't happen as much, but in small towns, it, it's kind of a big draw. And so uh, during my high school years, I played uh, high school basketball and high school football. And uh, I just, I love that whole small town environment and uh, just high school sports. And uh, high school basketball was my favorite. And I loved just everything about Tuesday and Friday nights. That's when our games were. I loved the band. Uh, I loved uh, just having the cheerleaders. I loved just the crowds and the popcorn. I loved the student sections. Like, I just, you know, I look back on that with fond memories. But as I was thinking about just this Texas week, I was reminded in my high school basketball playing days that there was a difference between a home game and an away game. And there was a, a felt difference, a more intensely felt difference between a home and an away game when we were playing one of our rivals. And so our biggest rival was Matawan. I know these towns sound crazy, but when we would play Matawan, like that was a big game. And I can remember being in the Matawan gym and uh, just the environment, just how intense it was, how uh, hostile it was. Uh, people weren't wishing that we would do well when we were at Matawan. They were wishing that we would fail. They were wishing that we would lose. They were trying to distract us from what we were trying to do. And I can remember, though, that an away game atmosphere, though, was actually good for us as a team because it helped us. It, it just caused a more intense sense of focus. 
it, it, it brought us together as a team and it just kind of sharpened us where we, we said we, we, we have to block out the noise, so to speak, and we have to focus in on the main thing. We, we want to focus in on what we've come to do on the court. And so I, I bring that up today because as Peter writes to these Christians in the first century, they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire and they were in an away game environment. This wasn't a home game for the Christians. There weren't people in the stands wishing they would do well. They weren't cheering them on. They weren't happy to have them in the gym, so to speak. This was a hostile, away game, cultural climate that these Christians were having to live out their faith in the midst of. And so Peter wrote this letter to the Christians who were scattered, both Jew and Gentile, in this Roman Empire, and he encouraged them to persevere through suffering. He encouraged them to endure hostility. He encouraged them to live out their faith in the midst of difficulty and to keep the main thing the main thing. So he would remind them often of what Christ had done for them. And he would remind them often of their new identity in Christ. And he would remind them that you are now sojourners in exile so that they would live out their faith and that it would be a faith that was marked and shaped by the cross as they kind of walked it out in an away game atmosphere. And we know from 1 Peter that for the Christian, not only just in first century, but in any century, that suffering is to be expected, that it's par for the course. But we also know from Scripture that God can use suffering and hostility and persecution and injustice and mistreatment. He can use all of those things that none of us look forward to necessarily, but he can, he can use them as tools of his grace to shape us into the people that he desires for us to be. And he can use those experiences as tools of his grace in which as he works in and through us in the midst of difficulty, our lives point to Jesus. So before we jump into chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, can I just remind you guys of what Pastor Andrew expounded on last week? In, in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, there was big identity statements in the text. If you remember, he said, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. But those identity statements led to a purpose statement. He said, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He said, at one time you were not a people, now you are a people. Now you are recipients of his mercy. And you are now his, and your identity has been radically altered through the gospel, but with a purpose, so that you might display and proclaim and demonstrate and declare who Jesus is and what he's done in your life, even in difficult circumstances. And if you keep reading, uh, I have it up on the screen, in verse 11 and 12, this is kind of the springboard into our text today. In verse 11 to 12, he says, Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says you are loved by God, you are part of the beloved, but this is not a home game. You're a sojourner here, you're an exile. You're in an away game territory. So he says, fight for holiness, engage in the battle. And then he also says, but keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles. And when he says Gentiles there, he means the non-believing world. He says, keep your conduct honorable so that even when they speak out against you, even when they just throw hostility at you, they can't argue with your lives. Even when they speak against you, they can't argue with your lives. And when this happens, he says, it will bring glory to God as your lives point to Jesus even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so this is the springboard, this idea of conducting ourselves in an honorable way. This idea of gospel conduct, and he begins as we journey on in the scriptures, he shows us how we can conduct ourselves in three different spheres of life. What does it mean to walk out the gospel and conduct ourselves in three spheres that we all have to deal with? In verses 13 through 17, we're not going to look at that today, but what is to be our new conduct towards the government and towards civil authorities? Then in verse 18 through 25, it's what is to be our gospel conduct towards our employers, towards authority that has been placed over us in the workplace, or it could even be in a collegiate setting as well. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it's, well, what is our conduct supposed to look like towards our spouse in the home? So three different spheres of life. And how are we to conduct ourselves as followers of Christ? Even when those fears are full of difficulty and challenges. And I want us to see in each of those that he wants us to allow the way of the cross to shape how we conduct ourselves in each of those three environments. So let's read verses 18 through 25 this morning. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in verse 18 through 20, he gives them some pretty clear instructions and he invites them to follow the way of Jesus. He invites them to follow the way of Jesus even in the workplace and even in a difficult workplace, to say the least. But before we unpack verse 18 through 20, I I just want to establish something because I think any of us who live in America, whenever we hear about slavery, it's hard to disconnect speaking of slavery from the slavery that happened here in America. And I want to be clear here that these verses were tragically and I would say wickedly used to justify slavery here in America. But I I also want to be clear that the system that Peter is addressing within first century Rome was significantly different than the slavery that happened on the shores of America. It's a completely different thing. And I'm... I'm, I, just, I am grieved and I hate the history that's been tied to these verses. And more importantly, God is grieved and hates the history that's been tied into these verses. But there's two different systems at work here. And so I want to just kind of make it clear just foundationally to begin just some of those differences. One author who wrote on Greco-Roman slavery said that, first off, racial factors played no role. So this was not a race-based system in which a particular uh, color of skin was enslaved by another race of people. Secondly, education was greatly encouraged amongst those who worked within this system. In fact, sometimes even the slaves and servants had a better education than their masters did. Not only that, but slaves and servants within this system oftentimes were empowered to take on some very significant tasks. They they were trusted and entrusted with some important things. There were no laws that prohibited them from gathering together publicly in a group. Uh, They could own property. And this author states that many of them anticipated by the age of 30 in urban settings and as domestic slaves that by the age of 30, that they would be emancipated. They were looking forward to freedom. In fact, these slaves and servants could earn money and earn it in such a way that they were oftentimes paying off a debt and they could purchase their own freedom. So I just want to be clear from the outset that two very different things at work here. I also want to make it clear in light of just kind of today's culture that this cannot be used to justify any type of human trafficking that exists today. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he goes through this list of different uh, groups of folks, and he refers to them as the ungodly and the lawless and uh, the sinner. And one of those groups of people that he threw into that list was the enslaver, someone who would... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kidnap someone else and enslave them. And slaver was listed in that list of the wicked 
of the godless, of the lawless ones. And even in Revelation chapter 18, when we're given a picture, you know, Revelation is a beautiful picture of the way things are supposed to be. And in that, we see in Revelation 18 that the enslaver will be dealt with. And any system that enslaves people created in the image of God will be dismantled. So I, I say that just to establish the foundation before we even kind of unpack verses 18 through 20 together. But now let's dig into these. Peter's addressing domestic servants or domestic slaves. So these were those who worked within the household of another or who worked on their estate. And so, yes, they were a servant. Yes, they were a slave. And they had a, a master and authority figure who was over them. And he's addressing specifically Christians who found themselves in this life situation. And yes, these verses make it clear that even though this was a very different system than North American slavery, servants and slaves in first century Rome could still be mistreated. They could still be treated unjustly. And yet, in the midst of that type of system, here's verses 18 through 20. And the instructions, in, as I've read them and reread them and prepared, the instructions to me are still startling. Because Peter writes to them and he kind of gives them two big instructions. One is, he says this, be subject to them. Be subject to your masters. That, that, that phrase, be subject to them, means submit to them. And this is actually a theme in this whole just kind of paragraph on gospel conduct. In the verses leading up to this, he says submit to government authorities. And here he says submit to authorities in the workplace. And then he's going to say submit to your spouse. So there's this theme that runs through of submission. He says treat them with respect. And then here's the part that really gets us. He even adds, just kind of paraphrasing, that this isn't conditional submission. He doesn't say submit when it's a great authority that's over you. He says even when you're treated poorly, continue to submit and continue to treat them with respect. Not just to the good guys, but to the bad guys too. And then the second instruction is he tells them essentially, suffer well. Keep doing good and endure suffering. Suffer for the sake of righteousness. And he says it's, it's really to no credit to you if you're acting out and you're misbehaving and then you're mistreated. That's really of no credit, but he says if you are conducting yourself well and you're mistreated, then it's a credit to you. And so I just want to pause here because you're probably like me as you read these verses. You, you're probably kind of wrestling with these verses right now. And if I'm honest this morning, I don't really like these instructions. I began to not even like that Pastor Andrew gave me these verses today. <laughs> like, I don't like verses 18 through 20. 
I don't like that this was written to first century servants. And then the, the, the closest parallel for us would be an employer-employee relationship. Or it could even be maybe in the classroom setting, a professor who is an authority over us. And so the application would be to submit to their authority, respect them, and endure mistreatment and suffering even when you're being treated unjustly and unfairly. But yet that's seemingly the instruction that we're given. And I don't like that because I like social justice. And when I read this verse, I almost want to like take Peter to the side and say, Peter, like haven't you read Amos? Or Peter, can we flip to Micah together? Can, can I show you, Peter, can I show you just God's heart for justice throughout Scripture? I want to pull Peter to the side and I, I want to just kind of exhort him from the full counsel of God's word. But I also know that Peter wasn't ignorant of those other verses, and even bigger than that, that the Bible says that all Scripture is God what? God breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God, and so I can't just completely dismiss it, or I can't disciple Peter out of his instructions. I, we just kind of have to sit underneath this and, and wrestle with the text. And it's not to say that there's not other places in Scripture where there's strong instructions maybe to where God raises up a deliverer to dismantle a system. There's other places where he does that. But that wasn't the instruction here. It, it seems to be a more subtle way of maybe there's a sense of which slowly this would undermine the very system that it would dismantle it from within. And I, I've also been encouraged, I, I thought about one of my heroes in the faith, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, we, we would say that he was one who fought for justice on behalf of others. He's one who contended for justice. But yet, even as he contended for justice, I was encouraged because I thought about his posture in the midst of it. He didn't return ugliness when he was treated ugly he didn't return hostility for hostility his his posture was something different it, it, it stood out in such a way that really it could only point to the example and the work of Jesus like we're being directed to here and so I I've needed just to sit under this and allow it to shape my posture and allow me to think through in the face of hostility and injustice, how we can still model Christ in the midst of it. It's also been good for my heart as I wrestle with this to think who was the human author that wrote this. It was Peter. Now just think about that for a second. Peter wasn't Mr. Submit and Suffer Well. Like if if you follow Peter's life, like, that wouldn't be like the, the nickname I would give him. That wouldn't be characteristics I would say, yeah, Peter's a guy that submits and suffers well. 
Because you think when Jesus in the Gospels, when he began to say to them, guys, I'm about to go to Jerusalem, and I have to go. And I'm going to be mistreated by the authorities, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to raise again. He was essentially saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, I have to go, I'm going to submit myself to unjust authorities, and I'm going to suffer well for the glory of God and the good of others. And do you remember Peter's response? Essentially, he said, Jesus, may it never go down like that. There is no way you're going out like that, Jesus. It can't happen that way. And yet Jesus rebuked him strongly and said, get behind me, Satan. And then think about the Garden of Gethsemane. As they were getting closer and closer to the cross and the authorities showed up to arrest Jesus and Peter's the one who pulled out a sword and cut off a guy's ear. He wasn't trying to submit to unjust authorities. He wasn't trying to suffer well. He was ready to fight. And so I want us to, it's been good for me to consider, and I want us to consider this morning, how did Peter go from sword-wielding Peter to someone who would write to other people encouraging them to endure suffering well and to submit And what I've seen in these verses clearly this week, it's it's the power of the cross that transformed Peter's life. It's, It's the way of the cross that messed Peter up. So much so that he was able to write to these believers and encourage them to submit and to suffer well. So look at verse 21 through 23. We're invited into the way of the cross. I'm going to just read those again. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Notice it says, for to this you have been called. We have been called to the way of the cross. One pastor said, I have an example in Jesus for you to imitate. I have an exile for you to follow. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrased it, This is the kind of life we've been invited into. It's the very life that Jesus lived. So he says, Christ suffered for you, and he suffered willingly. He suffered well. He didn't didn't return evil for evil. He didn't return blow for blow or threat for threat. But in the face of the injustices that he was experiencing, it says that He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was in the midst of hostility. He was mindful of his father. He was mindful of the just judge. And ultimately, he was submitted to him first. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Warren Wearsby put it, Put it well, he said, Jesus proved 
that a person could be in the will of God, be greatly loved by God, and still suffer unjustly. And it says that he left us an example that we might follow in his steps. That word example here, it it carries the meaning of a student who is attempting to reproduce a drawing he was looking at. Reproducing it, tracing it out. So he's saying reproduce what you've seen in Jesus. Follow in his steps. Follow the way of the cross. But then in the midst of these verses, though, verse 22 is like a stumbling block for us. Verse 22 should cause us to pause and think, because in verse 22 it says this, that Jesus committed no sin. Jesus committed no sin. And so this verse points us to the fact that We don't just need a good example to follow. We need a Savior to rescue us. We need something better than just an example to follow. We need rescue and we need ransom. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, he said that we were ransomed. And the ransom price was the very life of Jesus. Remember he wrote that we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that with a lamb without blemish or spot. And so Jesus came as the sinless sacrifice that we needed. And because he was the sinless sacrifice, he was the sufficient sacrifice. That's what verses 24 and 25 point out. Because of his sinlessness, that there's not only the example of the suffering of Jesus, but there is an outcome, there's something that it produced for us. Look at verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, Jesus bore our sins on the tree of the cross in order to make possible what theologians call the great exchange. It reminds us of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Let me just read this to us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It says we've been healed, but this is not a physical healing, but rather a spiritual healing in the sense that we have been forgiven of our sins because of the work of Jesus. And he's pointing out some of the the paradoxes of the cross. That Christ was wounded so that we could be healed. That Christ died so that we could live. That all of our sins were placed on Christ so that we could know his perfect righteousness credited to our account. And so we also see in these verses the parallels between 1 Peter and Isaiah chapter 53. 
Look at Isaiah 53, 5 through 7. And consider the, the similar language. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And, his wound, and by his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 9 and 10 continues, Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So by his wounds, we have been healed. And because of his perfect life and his sinless sacrifice, his righteousness is now credited to our account. And so now we are those who have died to sin and we now live to righteousness. He has made us something different and now we get to practically walk that out. And we get to practically follow our example of the suffering servant even in the midst of hostile places. Even in the midst of difficult workplaces. Even in the midst of difficult university settings. Even in away game environments, we get to follow the example of the suffering servant. I like what one theologian says that Peter fastens the conduct that he wants from his readers to the work of Christ on the cross. Peter fastens the conduct that he's exhorting us towards to the work of Christ on the cross. So now that we have been fastened to the work of Christ on the cross in verses 21 through 25, let's Let's revisit 18 through 20 and think through how we can practically live this out. And I know you may be thinking, Pastor Dave, you don't know my boss. You don't know what a jerk he is or what a jerk she is. You don't know what I'm contending with in these different settings. You don't know that person that this passage brings to mind. And you're right in your statements. I, I don't know those individual situations. And I don't say that to, to, to dismiss kind of what you're enduring or what you're going through. I sympathize with where you're at. But what I want us to do is I, I want us to look towards what we collectively have in common. To look to the character of our God and to be reminded that what we're called to do here, he gives us the power and the grace to live it out. So I want us in closing to consider three things as we think through how could we possibly do this. One is we are being watched by the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Remember verse 25, it finished with that, that at one time we were wandering away and yet we have been brought back 
to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. He is watching us. And I don't say that to evoke fear. I say that to give us comfort. That he is watching over us. That the Lord is now our shepherd. That he is with us and he is for us. He wants what's best for us. He is sovereign over our lives. He is wise in all that he does. And sometimes in his sovereign wisdom and even in his goodness, he allows us to walk through suffering. And he allows us to walk through mistreatment but he is able to use those as tools of his grace to shape us into who he's making us to become. He's even able to use those situations to give him glory and to give good and benefit to others. I like what one author said. He said that Jesus was able to submit and suffer because he continued entrusting himself or continued entrusting both himself and those who mistreated him entirely to God. Don't miss that. It says that he not only entrusted himself to God, he entrusted those who were mistreating him to God. He said, I give you myself and I submit them and their nasty treatment towards me to you, the just judge, because he had faith in the justice of God and that God would ultimately work what is right. And so as we think about our unique situations, we have to do what Jesus did in the sense that we must continue entrusting ourselves to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We have the power to submit to others because we have first submitted to him. It's only when we've submitted to the shepherd and overseers of our soul that we have the grace and power to submit to others, even those to whom we think that's the last thing I want to do is submit to that person. Secondly, we are being watched by the world. Titus 2, 9 and 10, it's on the screen. Here's Paul speaking into a similar type of context. And he says this, bond servants are to be submissives to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That last line is huge. So that in everything we might adorn the good news of Jesus Christ. So that in everything, we might highlight and accentuate and spotlight and point to who Christ is and what he's done in our lives and the difference it makes even when we're mistreated. So that in everything, we might point to him. You see, the way of the cross is supernatural. It kind of, it flips things on its head. The way of the cross shows us that there is power in getting low rather than always getting loud. 
shows us that there is power in taking the, the, the posture of a servant rather than grasping for power. And this is holy conduct. This is a display of what Pastor Aaron said a few weeks ago, be holy as I am holy. Oftentimes we think of holiness and we relegate it just to sexual purity or moral conduct. But holiness is bigger than that because to be holy means to be other than. And so when we take this type of posture and conduct ourselves in this type of way in the face of hostility thrown against us, that is holy. That is other than. In fact, it doesn't even make sense to a watching world apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, why would we ever do this? It doesn't make sense. And so, so to a culture and to a world that elevates self and celebrates self and lifts up me, myself, and I, when we live out a submitted life and when we endure suffering, the only explanation for it is Jesus. And so it can be a powerful tool to a watching world to point them to the good news of Jesus Christ. Because they should say, why, why do you do that? What would lead you to do that? Where does that power and just kind of that quiet strength come from? And lastly, in closing, I, I want to encourage us with something that I pray often for myself and for others, that his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. This type of holy conduct exudes grace. Notice, twice in verses 18 through 20, it says, for this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing. This, this points to the grace of God, and it's only possible in and through the grace of God. We need his sustaining grace to flesh this out. We need his enabling grace to flesh this out. Remember Paul, when he was pleading with God to take the thorn away from him, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this was the Lord's response to Paul. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This, these verses and these instructions, if anything else, should make us acknowledge our weakness in light of what we've just been encouraged to do. And to say to God, I don't think I can do it. But it's as we take that posture and say, I'm too weak, that's when he shows up. That's when his grace is sufficient. And when we display that type of conduct, God gets the glory. And the watching world is speechless in the face of that. There is a disarming that takes place. There is a wonder. And we have an incredible opportunity in an away game setting 
to just say it's, it's only because of Jesus. So let me, in closing, I want to read verses 11 and 12 again as just final words of encouragement and instruction. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's among the non-believing world, keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me pray for us. Father, what you have laid out in these verses is not something that comes naturally to any of us. It's truly a supernatural act. And so, Lord, we pray that you would empower us by your spirit and that you would empower us by your enabling grace to live this out in our workplaces, in university settings, wherever we're at, where we're, we're underneath authority. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live this out. And God, may it lead to many gospel conversations. May it lead to your glory and your glory alone. I pray that our lives would not make sense to those who are watching us. So we ask for your help that we might do this for your glory. We thank you for the way of the cross. We thank you for the power and the work of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.